the, uh, the what of Christian living, the, the what am I supposed to do, is not really a massive issue for most of us. It's, you know, it's pretty obvious. Positively, uh, love God with everything you have and everything you are, and love other people exactly the way you love yourselves. Negatively, kill off sin. Uh, don't tell lies to cover yourself at work. Don't get involved sexually outside of marriage. Don't live for just acquiring more and more stuff. It's the, the what of Christianity is not a huge issue for us. The problems for those of us who follow Jesus are more the why and the how. And so often uh, the story runs like this for those of us who call ourselves um, followers of Christ. We put our, our trust in Jesus and massive changes happen. You know, whole direction of life changes. Big patterns get ditched. But after a couple of years, not a lot changes. If we're honest, many of us haven't really made any progress for quite some time. And if, if I were to ask you, um, how have you been growing in the battles with sin in the last, and in growing in grace in the last three or four years? For many of us who've been Christians for more than five, six years, it's not really sure. The ongoing sins, the sort of selfishness, the laziness, the consumerism and the lust, they're hidden. You can't see them. They're not sort of raging out of control, ruining our, our life and our public witness. So it feels like, you know, there's, you know, they're basically sort of, we've got a lid on them. And so we don't feel gripped by this motivation, I must, I must, I must fight harder against sin. I must grow in grace. There's no compelling answer to the why of living as a Christian. And related to that, we've got questions about the how as well. Uh, what I mean is that it's just hard work swimming upstream. It's really, really hard work. And we're tired with the daily struggle of resisting temptation. And many of us, just if we're honest, we haven't got a massive amount of confidence that it is possible to get rid of some of the sins that are still embedded in our heart. They've been there for so long, and we've seen so little change over so many years. You know, the truth is, the temptation just seems to get the better of us day after day. After day, year after year after year. And so the questions come, and uh, not so much what should I be doing as a Christian, but how on earth do I find the power to change properly? And why should I fight when, you know, I'm already different from my non-Christian friends? And at the heart of the answer to those questions, the why and the how, if you like, of godliness, is the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to Romans 8. The first thing to say is that we can't jump straight into power in the present. We need to look at the past and the future first. Because the power to change in the present is grounded, first of all, in absolute assurance that Jesus' death in the past has given us forgiveness. So verses 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you are a Christian, there is no condemnation. None. If you trust in Jesus, you should not be confident you are forgiven. You should not be confident you are forgiven. You should be certain. Because Christianity is not a do-it religion, it's a done-it religion. It's not grounded in the things that you might do in the future, the things you are doing now, the things you have done in the past. It's grounded in what Jesus has achieved once for all on the cross. Look at verses uh, 3 to 4. 
for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, it's no good just knowing what I need to do. It can't change me. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God is just. Sin must be punished. So God became a man and took the punishment. Simple as that. And if you trust in Jesus, your sins, not sin in general, your sins have been punished already at a point in history on the cross. You see, there are, there are three Ps to sin. Really, really helpful thing just to get in your head for, forever, basically, is three Ps to sin. There's a penalty, a presence, and a power. Penalty, presence, and power. Verses 1 to 4 say the penalty has been completely taken. Jesus has taken all the punishment for sin. So there is nothing to fear come judgment day if you trust in Christ. Frankly, I don't care how guilty you feel. I really don't care what sins you're struggling with right now. I don't care how massive the consequences in your life are of things that you've done in the past. When it comes to whether or not you should be confident of going to heaven, I really don't care about those things because they're irrelevant. The only thing that matters is, did Jesus die on the cross to pay for your sins? If he did, then whatever you feel, whatever you've done, whatever the consequences have been, you're forgiven. That's the promise of the gospel. But it's not just a past thing. There is a future hope too. Let's skip to verses 14 to 17 where we move to think not just of the penalty of sin but the presence of sin. So verses 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so you live in fear again. Rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry Abba Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Real forgiveness in the past because of Christ's death and real hope in the future because of Christ's resurrection. That's what's being said here. He suffered, now he's in glory. We suffer now and we will then be in glory. Uh, in the Bible, sons are like their fathers. Their sonship is all about inheriting what dad owns and behaving the way dad behaves. That's what sonship means in the Bible. Um, so it's not saying sons rather than daughters. It's just the, the concept of sonship in the culture was sons inherit what the father owns, sons act like the father behaves. So this applies to men and women. And sonship, the spirit of sonship in verses 14 to 17 is about all of us, male and female, becoming like God our father. See, God is the most happy, the most contented, the most fulfilled, the most, the most free and, and joyful being in the entire universe. And one day, we will be like him. Having adopted us as his children, one day, we will be like him. One day, we won't struggle with sinful desires. Uh, one day you will see the most stunningly beautiful person and you won't feel even a twinge of lust. 
One day you'll bump into somebody who is vastly more talented and gifted than you. Somebody who has all the things you wanted. Whose life is exactly the way you always dreamed your life would be. And you won't feel any bitterness. Just delight in what God has given them. One day we will be free of every sinful desire. One day we will be happy and content and joyful and hopeful as God is. There is real hope for the future because of Christ's resurrection. There is real hope that one day we'll be free, not just from the penalty of sin, but even from its presence. And that is a wonderful promise. But in the meantime, grit your teeth and just get through. No. In the meantime, sin is no longer the undisputed champion of our hearts. There's a third P to sin, and that is its power. And while the presence, the end of the presence of sin is a future promise, the breaking of the power of sin is a present reality. And this is when the Holy Spirit steps onto centre stage, verses 5 to 13. So real forgiveness through Jesus' death in the past, real hope through Jesus' resurrection that points to the future, and real change through the Holy Spirit now. See, the Holy Spirit is not just the Holy Spirit, he's also the Spirit of holiness. What I mean is it's not just that he's holy himself, but that he works holiness into us. Well, how does he do that? And don't worry, I know a number of us are thinking, it's all very well you're going to tell us that there's great power for changing the Holy Spirit. I've been a Christian years, and I don't feel any great power. We'll come to that. So um, switch off your cynicism for two minutes. <laughs> Listen to the Bible, and we'll, work, uh, we'll look at that question in a minute. So verses uh, 5 to 8, he changes our desires and our delights. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, your desires and your delights change. And this is absolutely crucial. Because if I'm going to change, I need more than just more power, more self-discipline. It's the problem with all our change projects, whether it's New Year's resolutions or battles with a deep addiction. It's all very well learning to be more disciplined. That helps. And if you're a, if you're a particularly strong-willed character, you can go a long way on self-discipline. But if our heart desires remain unchanged, then we are fighting a losing battle. All we're doing is stretching the gap between how often we give in. That's all we're doing. Whatever we're trying to shackle, whether it's outbursts of blazing anger or vindictive cattiness or casual indifference to the needs of those who have a lot less than us, or the overwhelming sort of burning pressure cooker desires, eventually, no matter how much self-discipline we have, eventually, desire will overwhelm the discipline. Because we're, we're like a mousetrap, you know, held in place, but the spring is set, and it just requires something to knock us, and bang, it goes. Which is one of the reasons, it's, it's interesting, you often find in sort of moralistic cultures, um, so... Uh, in, in, a, in a place like the Deep South in America where you've got a lot of um, people who may not be Christians but have been so, but have raised in a moral Christian culture, you so often find very moral upstanding people having horrific 
collapses into, you know, suddenly you find them with 15 male prostitutes and you know, two and a half tons of cocaine, and they've been campaigning for moral values for 20 years. How is that possible? Because there's been massive self-discipline, but no change of heart desire. And so often you see it's the case. And uh, the Puritan writer John Flavel writes that we are more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power to rule and order our own hearts. In a moral culture, in a moral climate, in a moral context where those around us are encouraging us to be moral, we might go a long, long way on self-discipline. But we are always in danger of the next explosion. And furthermore, if, um, if all we get from the Holy Spirit is power and self-discipline, then Christians are going to be the most sour-faced bunch of miserable killjoys the world has ever had the misfortune to see. Because we're spending our lives not doing the stuff that deep down we really want to do. And that is no fun. But the Spirit does not just defeat our desires, he changes our desires. He gives us a new direction for our affection. And so pleasing God becomes not the thing I know I must do. It starts to become the thing that I find I want to do. And that's why verse 5 doesn't say if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you should set your mind on things that please God. He says, if the Spirit lives in you, you do set your mind on what pleases God. Because the Spirit changes what you desire. He changes the absorbing interests and the motivating passions of our lives. Now, um, many of you here are not British by birth, uh, which is not your fault. I don't judge you for that. Um, our remarkably lax immigration laws mean a number of you have paid some money, taken an exam, and sworn an oath before Her Majesty, and you've become British citizens. Your status has changed. Your passport... Yeah. <laughs> and you've paid a lot to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Your passport says you're British. Your bank account says you're skint from becoming British. <laughs> but your desires and delights don't change like that. And so when the rugby or the cricket comes on, the old sinful urges. <laughs> and you can't help yourself. You put on that yellow or that green jersey. And, and you find it impossible to cheer when England thrashes um, the team of the country where you were from originally. Uh, like, yeah. That's where this illustration falls down. I'm being flippant, but what I mean is you can't just change your desires by changing your status or making a resolution. It requires something else, a deep work, and only the Holy Spirit can get to your heart and change what your heart wants, what you desire and delight in. But gradually he does that, that is what his work is. Now, our hearts will not be perfect in this life. They'll still desire all sorts of selfish things, all sorts of wicked things. But although the change is not perfect, it is a real change. And slowly the Spirit does grow in us things that cannot grow by themselves. That is a, a delight in the way of God and a, a dissatisfaction with the sins that we only enjoyed before. And so as well as the, the ongoing sinful desires, the lust, the greed, the desire to get my own way, we find that another desire has grown in our hearts, a desire to please God. This was a, the great promise of Ezekiel 36 that we looked at um, yesterday. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone 
and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. In other words, Christianity is not just about a change of status, guilty to righteous. It's about a heart transplant. Um, I I did some research into this, and um, having a heart transplant is, I imagine, a fairly traumatic event. It also has all sorts of weird side effects that are not massively um, understood. Uh, one of them is a change, a genuinely, is a change in appetites. There was um, there's a lady called Claire Sylvia who uh, had a heart transplant in her early 40s. She was a very healthy woman, um, who ate healthily, didn't drink much. The organ donor was uh, surprisingly a, a motorcycle um, rider, an um, 18-year-old, whose diet involved kind of more, by the way, of KFC and beer. And when Claire recovered from the operation and was finally well enough to take solid food again, uh, the nurses at the hospital asked her what she'd like to eat. She said, I'm just dying for a beer and some chicken nuggets. She'd never eaten them before in her life. True story, genuinely true story. Um, But she had the heart of somebody who, I mean, they don't understand these things fully. But this is what happens to you and me. The Holy Spirit, you can look it up. I know it's true, it was on the internet. Um, (laughs) The Holy Spirit gives us a heart transplant and our desires and delights and our appetites in ways we don't understand, they change. Not for beer and chicken nuggets, but for loving God and serving other people. He will not make you sinless in this life, but he will make you sinless. He will not make you perfectly like Jesus, but he will make you more like Jesus. Uh, Secondly, verses... uh, 9 to 13. So having uh, changed our desires, having given us a new heart, he also now compels us to kill sin. Verse 9 to 13. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those of us who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The logic's simple in 9 to 11. If we trust in Christ, then we are dead to sin, we're dead with him, and we're alive with him. Our old way of life is dead. It was nailed to the cross with Christ. And we share in Christ's new life, his eternal resurrection life. Well, so what? So we have an obligation now to live in our new life. The old life is dead. Now, verse 14 you see that phrase, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You hear that phrase used in all sorts of contexts, usually about the Holy Spirit sat thing we looked at yesterday. But verse 14 is explaining verse 13. And it's nothing to do with mystic guidance. It's everything to do with being a cold-hearted killer, a religious warrior, a crusader. Not against people. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. But we are to hate our sin and to put it to death. And the sign that we are led by the Spirit is not just that we're at peace with God, it is that we're at war with sin. Um, 
three things that Paul seems to assume here. Firstly, God and sin are at war. There is no neutral ground when it comes to God and sin. There is no peace, no truce. There is only warfare. And you are either on the side of God, which means you are at peace with God and at war with sin, or you're on the side of sin, which means you're at peace with sinful desires, but you are at war with God. And therefore, if you're a Christian, as J.C. Ryle says, the Christian who longs to be holy will be known by his inward warfare as much as his inward peace. It's the first thing, God and sin are at war. Secondly, all of us have sin in our lives and need to deal with it. I really hope I don't have to convince you of that. (laughs) If you're not convinced of that, uh, can I suggest you talk to somebody who knows you very well? Your husband or wife, I'm sure, would be happy to furnish you with plenty of proof that you still have some sins to deal with. Your parents would be delighted to explain. Your best friends, I'm sure, uh, all of us have sin. And thirdly, sin does not die naturally. I'm not what you call green-fingered, much to the disappointment of my mother. Um, I could kill a plastic plant. Um, But one of the things that's always been a struggle for me is working out what is the difference between a plant and a weed. Uh, And... um, the, uh, in our last, um, the place we lived at before in Clapham, there was a little, uh, there was a little garden with the flat. And I finally worked out, uh, over the year and a half that we were there, the difference between plants and weeds. And I'll now share the secret with you, uh, for your benefit. And it's very typical, actually, of how things work in a sinful, fallen world. Leave it for three weeks. If it's dead, it was a plant. <laughs> if it's thriving and growing everywhere, it's a weed. <laughs> just the way it is. And sin is not a plant. Sin is a weed. Sin does not die naturally. Sin does not die of neglect. Sin needs to be hacked down, dug up, chopped to pieces and burned. He doesn't say, if by the Spirit you try not to sin so much, or if by the Spirit you feel really, really sorry when you sin, or if by the Spirit you fight against sin. He says, if by the Spirit you kill, slaughter, eradicate. Sin does not die naturally. Sin needs to be chopped and destroyed. Jesus' most shocking words, perhaps, Mark 9.45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Okay, it's a serious issue. So how do you fight sin by the Spirit's power? Two big questions. What does it mean to fight in the Spirit's power rather than whatever useless power I've been fighting for that means I've been such a failure for the last however many years? (coughs) That's the first question. The second question, if I fail, does that mean I'm not fighting in the in the power of the Holy Spirit? Second question first. Uh, No, is the simple answer. The Bible tells us that although there is a new power at work within us through the Holy Spirit, that we will not be perfect in this life. Romans 7 says the experience of the Christian in this life is huge internal frustration that we just can't do what we long now to do. We are free from the penalty of sin, its power is broken, but the presence remains. We will never be perfect in this life. Why is that? Uh, Because although we have the power, we are still sinful and stupid. Um, I may have shared before, I went to one of those 
public schools where boarding schools where uh, prefects had more sort of power that tin pot dictators can only dream of and um, physical discipline was perfectly permissible which involved the hospitalization of three of my friends in the first year at school all good fun and games and that's what their parents paid for um, the, uh, and um, uh, one of the things was in the, in the TV room in the boarding house there was a big TV um, and actually back in those days, I mean, this side was a big TV. But, um, uh, and so the front row seats were where you wanted to sit if you wanted to see anything. And the rule was very simple. Anybody in a, in a higher year could just take your seat. So especially somebody in the top year walked in, they just walked to the front and you just had to get out of the seat. It's just that simple. It's the way it worked. And I remember I bumped into a guy who was the head of school in my first year. I bumped into him when I was working in the city. And on the tube, I hadn't seen him for years and years and years, and I got up just <laughs> automatically. I tried to pretend I was just trying to say hello, but it was just default. <laughs> it was just it was just simple learned behaviour. I had he had no power over me whatsoever. I was the same size as him now. I tell you what, I was tempted, <laughs> but um, he was still a bit bigger. Uh, the he had no power, but I'd just been so ingrained with the this is how I have to behave that I. I just acted like I was his slave. And we do that with sin. The power is broken, but we've spent so long being slaves, so long acting like slaves, that we find ourselves slipping back into it almost without thinking. We feel like slaves, even when we're not. And it takes years to unlearn patterns of behavior. And it won't be until heaven before we're really fully clear of these things. So don't be surprised if, even though you... The Holy Spirit is at work in us. We still struggle to be free. Okay, as to the first question, uh, what does it look like to fight in the power of the Spirit? How do we tap into his power? Uh, there is no magic abracadabra for the Christian. It's not like a, you know, the arcade fighting games where you know, you've got, your character has all its, you know, you've got the punch and the kick, and if he's Scottish, the headbutt. Um, but then if you uh, hold down... Uh, buttons A and B and toggle left really quickly, he sort of glows blue and taps into his superpower and destroys everything on the screen. You know what I mean. Um, Sharon looks very confused. <laughs> Sharon, teenage boys play these things for arcade. Anyway, some, uh, somebody can explain. Yeah. Um, Sharon, there's an education awaiting you. Uh, Monday morning in the office. Somebody uh, bring in Street Fighter 2 for Sharon. Um, it is not like that as Christians. There is no special weird thing that happens that means you tap into some superpower. So remember uh, what Philippians 2 said. Um, have, you, have you looked at Philippians 2.12? Have we got that far? Yeah. So, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's not, um, don't do anything and God will somehow do it through, for you. Colossians uh, 1.29 um, I struggle with his power that works so powerfully through me. So it is, we are, it just feels like we're, we're struggling. But the Spirit is working through us. It's not like it feels different. It's not like it feels like, oh, it's just easy now. The Spirit's, you know, taken over. It's not like tag team that we sort of tap out and let him take over. It feels like us fighting and struggling hard. But I said there's no abracadabra. There is, though, a magic word of power, if you like. Um, Psalm 119, verse 11, says this. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
See, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? And this, I think, was the thing that helped me to understand why it was that I was seeing so little change in so many areas that I sort of wanted to change in. The spirit works through the word. What does that mean? How is that? How does that help me with the fights to get rid of sin and to grow in godliness? What it's saying is that he takes words out here on a page and drives them in here into the heart. So he enables me to read passages that warn of God's judgment and believe that you don't mess around with God. There is going to be a judgment day. He enables me to hear what the Bible says about sin and to see through the lies that our culture says that, you know what, it's not a big deal. Um, You're going to miss out if you don't do all these things. No, the Spirit enables me to read what the Bible says and to believe that sin is corrosive, miserable, damaging, that it ruins relationships and rots our soul. I can read that on a page and it just makes no impact on me. But the Spirit enables those truths to to bed down in my heart and change the way I think about sin. That's why Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You start to behave differently when you think differently. And he enables me to believe the promises of the Bible. So that when the Bible says, I run in the path of your commands because you've set my heart free. We start to believe, actually obeying God is not the miserable thing I have to do. It is the joyful privilege that has been given to me. And what I found, um, I'm, what a, it's always, you know, you've got to be uh, careful about talking about any, any sort of growth because you make yourself sound better than you are. I have plenty of, plenty of sin. In, in one or two areas where I've seen real change, the, one of the things that really hugely helped me was getting serious about meditating on passages of the Bible that really addressed them, that showed how awful the sins I was playing with were, and that showed how wonderful it was to live God's way, and meditating day after day after day on those passages. The Holy Spirit bored them down into my heart until I started to really believe them. And then I started to think differently about the sins that I enjoyed and really wanted to hang on to for as long as I could. And if God said, you know what, you can keep them in heaven if you really like, I said, yes. And I started to see them the way God saw them, and started to hate them, and started to want to be holy. You see, that's what the Spirit does. He takes the words out here on the page, the words of promise and warning and reality, and he drives them into our hearts. He changes how we think, and then we start living differently. It doesn't happen overnight. Always. Sometimes it does. But it does happen. And you and I, as we said again yesterday, we need to stop listening to ourselves and start speaking truth to ourselves. We need to get real about growth in godliness, whether it's the negative of fighting those particular sins or the positive of growing in these fruits of the Spirit. And we need to pray, meditate, wrestle with those verses, drive them into our hearts, understand them in our minds, and pray that the Spirit would enable us to live them out. And as we do so, we will find his power in our battles. We will find that he gives us not just a new direction, but a desire for that new direction. But let's get one thing straight. The Holy Spirit's not an excuse for doing nothing. I've got the Holy Spirit, I've tried, nothing's happened. 
you can't just put your feet up and say, well, you know, I had the Holy Spirit and nothing happened. It's like going to, that'd be like going to the manager of a gym and saying, I want my money back. I've been here for six months. I've not lost a single ounce of fat or put on a single pound of muscle. He says, well, how often have you been? Well, I haven't. But I paid my membership for six months. You need to actually come and work out. Oh, I didn't realize that. The Spirit doesn't work independently from our efforts. It's not as if, oh, I've got the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to fight against sin. He'll sort of do it. It's, no, the Holy Spirit empowers our efforts. That's how God works. And now we have a greater motivation to fight because we know that it's not a battle we have to lose. So expect more. Uh, the, the Australian cricket team in the 1990s uh, were very, very good. And they had this philosophy called mental disintegration. It's a wonderful phrase. The, the aim of it was that you didn't just beat the opposition, you crushed them and ground them into the dust so that they stopped believing that they had any chance of winning. It meant that uh, if the opposition ever got in a position of being close to winning, they, they never had the belief that they ever would. They always thought something's going to go wrong. You mentally disintegrated them until they could not beat you because they just didn't believe it anymore. And England used to lose long before the matches started, again and again and again. It was a miserable time. And then Freddie Flintoff arrived. And Freddie was big, and Freddie was skillful, and Freddie was not afraid of the Australians or anything else other than pedalos, from what I can tell. <laughs> and with Freddie, the other players started to believe they could win. And for a short while, while Freddie was fit and sober, they did. <laughs> and the truth is, many of us here are mentally disintegrated. We've been Christians for a while, and we've got used to failing with some particular sins, or failing with some particular fruit of the Spirit, that we try to be patient with our parents, we try to be loving, we try to be forgiving, we try not to give in to lust, and we just, we know we're going to lose. We've forgotten that we have the power of the Spirit. We don't believe that he's as strong as our desires. And so we stop listening to the word of God and we start listening to the inner voice of doubt and disbelief. Stop being idiots. Stop thinking God's a liar. Ask the Spirit to enable you to believe his word. Pray for the Spirit's help and his power. And you'll find it, it's not a fight you will always win, the fight against sin, the fight for holiness, but it is a fight that you no longer need to lose. Because as Christians, the principle and power of sin no longer rules us. Jesus Christ rules us. God the Son has died in the past to give you forgiveness, and he's risen to new life to guarantee you a sinless, happy, fulfilled, delighted, rich eternity. And in the present, he's given us his Holy Spirit to slowly change us towards that future. So don't despair. Don't stop fighting those cherished pet sins that we I'm not even sure we want to give up. The Holy Spirit will enable you to believe God's truth about those sins. Don't settle for the lie that you have to be <coughs> mediocre. Don't settle for the lie that you, you can't change. Believe God's word. Lean on one another. Pray for one another. Help one another. And fight with one another by the Spirit's strength for a fuller and better life for you and for God's greater glory in your life.